My name is Bruce. I'm the pastor of discipleship. For those of you who don't know me, Jim is on his way back from Israel. So uh, I think he's joining us next week. Does anybody know? Yes. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for truth that helps us see clearly what life is all about. We ask for your Holy Spirit to guide me in the words that I say and guide us in how we receive it so that you may be honored and that our, our hearts would see the beauty of our Savior. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As you know, our dear sister Mary Jean Buttrey went home to the open arms of her Savior on Thursday morning at 6 a.m. For years, I've watched Mary Jean suffer well. Wonderfully, the Lord made her able to teach the word on Monday and stand before the word on Thursday. I treasured our conversations together. I've often would go into her room before and after Bible study and we would talk shop. We discussed theology, the Bible, reality, not just the Christian life conceptually, but in reality. What is it really like? What really matters? And we would sometimes discuss in amazement just what that moment would be like when we see our Savior. Not in a mirror dimly as we do now, according to the Apostle Paul, but then face to face. I mentioned to Paul on Thursday that I imagine Mary Jean right now with her jaw on the floor before Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, who is so tender and gentle like a shepherd. I mean, just think about it. looking right past the pearly gates and the streets of gold to God the Son. I came prepared. The Apostle John says in Revelation 1 that his voice was like the roar of many waters and his face was like the shining sun in full strength. Can you picture it? Even if you can, your imagination is so incomparable to the reality. Aren't you glad it is? And are you a little jealous for Mary Jean? 
Your honor, honest answer to that question will say a lot about how you suffer in this life. But we'll get to that in a minute. Because, yes, I am jealous and happy for Mary Jean, yet I'm grieving the loss. We may be here for a while. The moment I got the news, it literally stopped me in my tracks. My heart is sad. I had a hard time keeping it together at Bible study that morning. From there, I went to the grocery store where I wept in the parking lot. I stood in the store, unable to make a decision as to what to buy. I stood there in the middle of the store, not knowing where to go. When I pulled into the garage, I sat in my car and cried. My brain has been mush. My heart is sad. I feel lost. Paul and Gail, our love and our prayers are with you. This is the complexity and the reality of living for Christ in a sin-cursed world. Maybe we could call it broken-hearted joy. Or like one of the women mentioned yesterday in our wonderful women's event, every day is a mix of grief and joy. That old gospel track we used years ago may have done the church a great disservice. It starts like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yet my life just isn't all that wonderful at times. Friends die. Chronic kidney stone pain. Family concerns, as any father has. Ministry concerns. So I don't know about you, but I find it hard. I find life hard at times. Disappointing, frustrating, infuriating, difficult, deadening, worrisome, frightful, drowning, depressing. And I don't think I'm alone. The psalmists use similar words in their laments. So God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life feels like a bait and switch. And what makes God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life even worse is that we connect God's loving me with a wonderful life. So when my life isn't all that wonderful, does it mean God doesn't love me? 
Have I done something wrong? Is he angry at me? Have I done something to deserve this suffering? Or have I not done enough to get his attention? When do I get the wonderful life part of life? Here's the problem. We define wonderful life. But this life God has given us is not ours to define. God defines it. God is writing your story. And he is good and faithful and loving and kind and knows just the right story for you. We want good kids, clean house, privacy fence, a good paying job that's rewarding, a nice retirement plan, and a stress-free vacations. And when we don't get it, we begin to question God as if we don't, as if we know better what our life should be like. I mean, if we were writing our story, it wouldn't be this one. But we don't. And God has a plan for suffering in your life. Suffering is normal. I want this to be a category in your mind. Suffering is normal for the believer, not abnormal. There is no avoiding suffering. It's a normal part of the Christian life. Listen to what God's word says. Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Acts 14, and saying that through many uh, tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Second Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First Peter, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And not just light suffering, but tragic unspeakable and unjust suffering. First Peter says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Or Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Or Matthew 24, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Or remember in Hebrews 11, some were tortured, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, and they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword, and they went about with skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. These were believers. 
of whom the world was not worthy. And, of course, suffering can be minor as well. But even minor suffering feels big in the moment, like lines of traffic, lines at the grocery store, or lines anywhere. Or maybe a physical problem, or a relational difficulty, or even the monotony of routine. But don't believe for a second that your suffering means that God doesn't love you, or that God is unhappy with you, or that you are not worthy of his time. Those are lies. In Psalm 73, Asaph, the writer, admits that he was at his wit's end, just like we are, when he saw the wicked prospering while all he got from doing the right thing was hardship. Verse 12 through 14, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This didn't make sense to Asaph because it seemed that God didn't love him and have a wonderful plan for his life until God showed him their end and his. The wicked are living a dream that will be gone when they wake up, verse 20. But Asaph, now seeing God at the center and not himself, found a deeply settled confidence that carried him through the rest of his life, verses 25 and 26. Of whom, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you think about it, your suffering is one of the loving means God uses to show you his power and grace and comfort and help and presence. You remember when Paul was, had cast out a demon in a young girl and for it he was attacked and then stripped while the town magistrates had him beaten severely with rods and then thrown into prison in stocks. But that night, while praying and singing, God opened the doors and unfastened everyone's bonds. God can do that. God can rescue in dramatic ways. God can heal in dramatic ways. God can reveal relieve your suffering and bring you success. So why doesn't he do that more often? And if he can open prison doors, why didn't he stop the crowds and the magistrates in the first place? He could have. Why didn't he? Why is Paul now in Philippians languishing in house arrest 
Why does God not free him and solve all Paul's problems like he did before? I mean, if God loved Paul, wouldn't he do this good thing for him? So why doesn't God give us a problem-free victory over suffering and hardship, that wonderful life we all long for? Because God is doing something far better for you and in you. God is doing something in your heart. He wants your heart. In the so-called good times and the bad times, he wants you to see him, to be happy in him. He wants to be the satisfaction of your soul's desire. He wants to be the foundation of life for you. And where are you going to look for him except in the midst of suffering? With suffering, God loosens our grip on this world so that we can cling only to him, look to him only, long for him only. This makes suffering his most effective tool for those he loves. When you are in over your head, when you've tried and tried and tried, when you just can't put the pieces together, God says, I am here, trust me. Trust me right now. Trust me in the long term. That's why the Bible says so often to wait on the Lord, to persevere, to endure with patience. This makes you more like a son trusting his good, good father. This makes you more like Jesus. And this honors Jesus like nothing else can. This brings us to our passage this morning in Philippians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to 26. So I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles so you can follow along. As we have said, Paul is in prison. This is Paul's current suffering. What's yours? Are you suffering in some way right now? Would you say that you are suffering well? What does that even mean? That's what I want us to see from Paul as we talk through this passage for today. Philippians 1, verses 18 to 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart 
and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. What I mean by suffer well is how can we suffer in ways that honor and glorify Christ? So to suffer well, we must first invite others in. Look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. We can't go through suffering alone and do it well. We need the body of Christ. We need the brothers, our brothers and sisters coming around us. Paul Buttrey said to me more than once in the past month that having the family of believers present brings such comfort and encouragement to both Mary Jean and him. And as far as he was concerned, they couldn't have too many visitors. The presence and prayers of others has such a powerful effect because God uses people through the Holy Spirit to bring comfort and encouragement to others. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. Paul was willing to walk past an open door for ministry because he needed his friend Titus. Then look at what, Pete, what Paul says in chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, regarding God's use of Titus. 2 Corinthians 7, 6. Sorry, I didn't get my slides in on time, so not all the verses are up there. So use your phone and get there quick. Listen to what Paul says of Titus. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. You see, God comforts but he often uses people to do it. God works through the presence of people to bring stability, rest, comfort, and encouragement to others. We may feel hesitant and unclear as to what to say in the moment, but don't worry about that. God will use you. God will give you words. And really, it's not about you anyways. God is present. God is working. God will be a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble through you. You may walk away and feel that you weren't that encouraging, but know that God uses you and your words and your presence to have a God-glorifying effect. 
Now, if you're in 2 Corinthians, jump down to chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Listen to this. Chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Notice, Titus went of his own free will, his own desire to go, yet it was God who put that desire in his heart. So if you feel led to call or visit someone, it just may be God putting the desire in your heart to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. Now, our passage here speaks of your prayers. Paul is looking to their prayers. Prayer for one another is powerful when we call on God to accomplish his will in the lives of others. Because what we pray for is important. Again, God is more concerned about rescuing your heart than about rescuing you from your circumstance. I love Joshua's prayer after the humiliating defeat at Ai, when Israel broke faith with God, trusted in themselves rather than in God to lead them. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 9, his prayer ends like this. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of our loss and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And then he asks this great question, which should be attached to all of our prayers. And what will you do for your great name? That is a wonderful prayer. It is wonderful because it keeps the focus on God's glory and not on me and my circumstances. What will you do for your great name? I am letting go of what I want. Hands open wide, eyes open wide to see what God wants. What will God do for his glory? And what gives God more glory than when we face our ongoing suffering? You say deep in your soul, God is worth it. I'm going to endure this suffering as long as it takes because God is worth it. That's how valuable he is to me. That's what gives God glory. And that is Paul's desire, as we see in the next point. To suffer well, we must have the right expectation. We must have the right expectation. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all, that I will be not at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Over and over, 
over and above his circumstances, Paul's eager expectation and hope is this. His deepest desire is not whether he is freed, nor even whether he lives or dies. His deepest expectation and desire is that Christ is honored in the way that he walks through his suffering, in the way he lives and in the way he dies. That he does it with full courage. Do you see how facing his suffering with courage because of his faith in Christ honors Christ? This is why Paul values their prayers, depends on the help of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want to shrink away from Christ, though that might be a solution to his suffering. Think about it. Paul may be tempted to pull back in order to get out of prison. He may even justify it by saying, I can, do so much, I can be so much more of a help to God in furthering his kingdom if I'm out of prison than if I'm in prison. I'll shrink back from Christ now so I can continue my ministry later. And don't we do that? Don't we justify our sinful responses to our suffering as if they're believing responses? We hold too tightly to what we want even convincing ourselves that it is what God wants, when in reality our hands are gripping our will and our kingdom rather than opening our hands and hearts to God's will and his kingdom. Our will is no suffering, but God's will is I want to expose your self-dependence and faithlessness, and I want you to look to me as all you need. What did Paul want more than anything? Not a solution to his suffering, but to honor Christ in his suffering by treasuring Christ above all. This is what Paul means when he says in Colossians, seek the things above. Set your mind on things that are above. There's always something deeper going on than just your circumstances that you're facing. Your suffering is not mainly about you. Your suffering is mainly about having courage to honor Christ in a way, in the way we walk through suffering. Your suffering is about your willingness to go through it as long as you have Christ, because your eyes are on him. He is your treasure, more than healing, more than solution, more than fixes. Your suffering about Christ and what you think about him and what you display in your words and your actions, that's what your suffering is about. The psalmist says this, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is his suffering, his circumstances. Then he reveals how he is walking through his suffering. I will fear no evil. And then he gives the reason for such confidence, because God is with me. We honor Christ in our suffering 
by knowing, trusting, believing that my loving, faithful, almighty, yet gentle Father is with me. That in spite of my feelings, I know, believe, trust that he is right here, a very present help in trouble. That his love for me has been demonstrated on the cross, sending his own son to sacrifice himself for me, taking my place, that he might bring me to the Father. He's already proven that he'll do anything it takes to get me there so I can rest in him. And in that rest comes love for those around me in my suffering. And joy in my Lord that he considers me worthy to suffer in this way. And peace that protects me from fear and anxiety and allows me to move toward others with patience and kindness. This is what it looks like to honor Christ in our bodies, in our suffering. This is how we suffer well. This is the eager expectation we should have in our suffering. And finally, to suffer well, we must have the right framework. We must have the right framework. Verse 21. This verse gives us the basis or ground, or as I like to put it, the right framework from which to see our life and our circumstances and our suffering. Verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why does Paul want Christ honored in his body, whether he lives or dies? Because for Paul, Christ is everything. There is nothing greater. There is nothing higher. There is nothing better. There is nothing more valuable. To live, Christ. To die, gain. Meaning, life and death for Paul are all about Christ the pinnacle of his pursuits, the meaning of life, Paul's greatest treasure. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say to live is success at work. To live is comfortable retirement plan. To live is a happy family. To live is stress-free vacations. To live is accolades from your peers or fill in the blank. Rather, in your life, in your family life, shopping at the grocery store, playing with your kids, time alone with your thoughts, that in all that you have to do to live in this world, you make Christ the basis, Christ the reason, and Christ the goal. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15 says this. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. 
For the love of Christ controls us. And I believe what he means by that is that the knowledge of Christ's love for us controls us. Why? Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, this does not mean that we all quit our jobs and join the ministry. It means that you interact with your spouse, your kids, your business people, whoever, with the knowledge that Christ loves you and is bringing you through your suffering all the way home. You let that thought control you, control your words, control your actions, control your thoughts. That honors Christ. For Paul, to live meant fruitful labor. See verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Notice that he says fruitful labor as opposed to just labor. We all fill our time doing stuff. But I wonder how fruitful is our labor. Is it being controlled by the knowledge of Christ's love and so bearing fruit of the Spirit? For Paul, this fruitful labor is clarified in verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. Paul wants to continue to help the Philippian believers flourish in their faith with joy no matter their circumstances. Seeing others gain a greater vision of Christ, a deeper love for Christ, a fuller joy in Christ was Paul's desire if his circumstances turned out that he would be released. But if he wasn't, if his circumstances turned out that he, would be, that he would receive death, gain, Philippians 1, 23. My desire is to, be, to, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Being with Christ is better. Better than finding someone special. Better than the giggles of your baby. Better than the vacation to your once-in-a-lifetime dream location. Better than all of that. And I know you probably can't imagine that. I know there are things in this world that are so real, so precious, so special, so wonderful. But let those joys point you to an even greater joy that will be ours in God's presence. I want, you, I want to tell you that what Mary Jean is experiencing right now is 10,000 times better. D.A. Carson writes that our life will be swallowed up 
in the glorious delight of the unshielded presence of the exalted Jesus himself. Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The Apostle Paul suffered well because nothing, no, nothing mattered more to him than Christ. In chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. After my mom passed away from brutal and terrifyingly painful five years battle with cancer, when I struggled deeply with my faith because of what she went through, one hymn arrested me. It brought me to my knees in humble worship of our mighty fortress of a God. The hymn ends with these words. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Heavenly Father, may we know you as better than any joy we can imagine here on earth. That being in your presence is gain, saying no to all that we have that we experience and love in this world, that it does not compare to the glories that await us of being in your presence Almighty, infinite, eternal, loving, precious, heavenly Father. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name.